Good morning, church family. Why don't you stand, grab your Bibles, and turn to Isaiah for the reading of God's words, page 573 in the Bibles around the room. When I'm done, I'm going to say this is the word of the Lord, and you're going to respond, thanks be to God, because this is the living, breathing word of God. Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, your plan is perfect. You sent us a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, and a prince of peace. Thank you for your son as Lord Messiah to save us from our sins. To you alone be the glory. Open our hearts now and our minds as we hear your word preached. Let us embrace the season of joy and celebrate our salvation in your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Melanie. Everybody be seated, please. Well, good morning, church. My name is Kyle. If you're a guest with us, welcome to Living Stones. Uh, You might be wondering what we're about. We are about God, and that's why we're here. And you are welcome here, wherever you're at, uh, you know, in that pursuit of God. You might be somebody who says, I'm not really sure what I believe. You might be somebody who's a skeptic to the Bible. You might be somebody who uh, you feel like you've fallen away from God and want to come back. Whatever the reason, we are honored that you're here. And uh, you need to know that what the word church means is it means a gathering of God's people to, so that they could together offer praise to him. And so I want to speak to those of you who are members of this church, and I just want to remind you that that's why we're here. We are here uh, together to praise Him. Everybody's supposed to praise Him as we're, we're doing this together. So that continues even through the preaching of the Word. So when I preach, you guys are not just listening, you guys are active participants, And so uh, I I was talking with somebody. I know that elementary school and high school has trained us to, you know, we have to like raise our hand. You don't have to do that at church. You can say amen. And that means yes. So if amen makes you feel uncomfortable, just say yes. Okay, say that. Uh, You can also say hallelujah. That means praise the Lord. And you see, the reason why this is so important is one of the things is outside of the church, there's all these lies that are coming at us. And inside the church, we need to affirm each other with truth. And so when we say amen, when we say hallelujah, when we say, sometimes you can't say words, so you just go, "Mm." you stand up, you can stand up like that and go, "Mm." that means I agree. And you're encouraging the people around you to agree with what God has said. That's what God has said, okay? So we are active participants. And we're looking, uh, we're, we're going through an Advent series. And as Matt explained earlier, the word Advent means arrival. And during Christmas time, we're, we're anticipating the arrival of God's son. And we're asking the question, what child is this? This week when the staff, we were driving around the city, we were praying for different neighborhoods. And we were driving by several homes that had nativity scenes in their front yard with uh, shepherds and wise men and Mary and Joseph and a baby lying in a manger. 
And that is who we're celebrating at Christmas, that Jesus was born, God in the flesh, born as a baby, and he was placed in a manger. And we're asking the question, what child is this? Now, I don't know about you, but this last week, I've been asked a lot, are you ready for Christmas? And my eye starts twitching because I'm not ready for Christmas. <laughs> I'm stressed out. I don't have the stuff I want to, you know, the little gifts I want to buy. I'm busy. I got this party and that party and this thing and that thing. And then, by the way, Christmas service is like the ch- church Super Bowl. So it's like, there's all this stuff coming at me. And I'm just like, I can't take it anymore. And I've been asking the question this morning, how did it get so crazy? Anybody with me? How did Christmas get so crazy where it's all about all of our productivity and busyness and chaos? I think it's interesting that when you study the Christmas texts of the Bible, they never once give us something to do. They only give us someone to receive. And that's what Christmas is about. In fact, listen, church, that's what Christianity is about. Not about what we do. It's about who we are to receive. The most productive thing you could do this Christmas season is stand amazed at the one in the manger. And I love the passage we're in today, Isaiah chapter 9, which, if, by the way, if you don't have a Bible open, open one to there. And on the Bibles we said around the room, that's on page nine, or 573. And this passage is simply a passage that just gives glory to God. And that's all we're going to do here today. We're just going to stand amazed. And it gives us three reasons to stand amazed at this child. This child whom God has promised. He is the Messiah, which means the promised Savior and King of the Old Testament. First, we're going to look at how we are to stand amazed because of his birth. Then we're going to look at how we're to stand amazed because of his names. And then we're going to look at how we're supposed to stand amazed because of his reign. So first, let's look at his birth. Let's look at verse 6. If you're new to the Bible, the big numbers are the chapters and the little numbers are the verses. Verse 6 says this. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be laid upon his shoulder. This is a promise 700 years before Jesus is born that the Messiah would be born. 700 years. And that should cause us to stand amazed because it's foretold by hundreds of years, which is something only God can do. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, this is the language of God, not the language of man. We do not know what is going to happen in the next year. We do not know what's going to happen in the next month. We don't even know what's going to happen in the next 10 minutes. But God, 700 years before, I want you to notice the language. When he promised it, he said it as if it had already happened. To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And that's very important because when God says something, it's as good as done. And that's so important for us in a world of broken promises. God is a God who fulfills his word. So stand amazed. When you gather around that child in a manger, you should hear God whispering into your ear, I told you so. (laughs) He is a God who fulfills his promise. And a God who fulfills his promise is a God we can trust. The second reason why the birth calls us to stand amazed is because it reveals the depth 
of God's love. Now, we love this Christmas text in Isaiah 9, but if you were to read the passages before it and the passages after it, it would be a little disorienting because Isaiah is largely a book about God's judgment towards his people Israel. Israel had wandered away from him. They had strayed away. They had sinned and they treated him awfully and they started to treat each other awfully. And so when you're reading Isaiah, you're like, dang, God is angry. He's upset. But then you get to Isaiah 9 and you say, but he's still overcome with love. And it's a good message to us that though we stray away from God, God is still overcome with love for us. God loves sinners. There is no other God in any other worldview that loves sinners like our God. Study it for yourself. The God of the Bible, yes, he gets angry at sin. And he gets angry when we hurt each other. But his anger is overcome by love. And so when you see this child in a manger, you see the depth of God's love. And you hear God saying to you, though you've strayed far from me, you still matter. Isn't that deep down what you want more than anything? Is to know that you matter. And you know what's so crazy is like if you perceive somebody to be lesser than you and they say, you matter to me, you're like, yeah, whatever. But the people that we perceive to be greater than us, when they say you matter to me, it really means something special. This is God Almighty saying, you matter to me. Stand amazed. The third reason we should stand amazed at his birth is because it reveals the humble nature of God's kingdom. One of the themes of the Bible is that humanity needs a king. But the problem is, is that all the kings that we appoint are bad kings. For some reason, we can't seem to get a good ruler. But the promised Messiah of the Old Testament revealed here in Isaiah is God saying to us, I'm going to give you a better king, a king who won't screw up, a king who will be righteous, a king who will lead in justice, and a king who will be great. But how does he come? How does God mark the hour of his deliverance? It's not a great army. It's not a strong man. It's not a savvy politician. It's a baby. (laughs) A baby. God reveals his plan to deliver his people and to give us a better king through humility, not glory. Through self-sacrifice, not self-promotion. And through love, not pride. And what it reveals to us is that this baby would, he would overthrow evil by offering up his life. That's why so many of us miss God. Did you know that? Many of us miss God. We're like, we we think that to see God, you need to have some firework experience. You're like, but I read the Bible and I fall asleep. Or I read the Bible and like, I don't cry and weep. Like, God's not speaking to me. Well, I love what one mystic says. She says, you're not seeing God because you're not looking. It's not that you're not looking high enough. It's because you're not willing to look low enough. At Christmas time, we're reminded that where we find God is not in these firework feelings. We find them in a manger, in flesh. And I think what Jesus is revealing to us as he's born as a baby in flesh in a manger amongst animals to poor people is he's revealing that it's okay to be normal. 
And listen, every pop song out there is like, you're special, you need to, you know, you're not normal, don't be normal. God says, you find me in the normal. It's in the normal things of life that we find the God of the universe. Hallelujah. So we stand amazed. Fourth reason we stand amazed is because this birth is a picture of God's grace. The word grace means a favorable gift to the unfavorable. It means a good gift for bad people. Grace is the opposite of a wage or reward because wages and rewards are earned, but grace is given. And look at what it says. It says, to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. In God giving us a baby, he's making a very important theological statement. Like when you hold a baby, you're just, you're kind of in awe, right? Like, and and you just think about new life and the miracle of new life. Yesterday I was holding a baby. It's my cousin's baby. And uh, it was born recently, like a week or I don't know. I should know this because it's a family member, but I was holding this brand new baby. And uh, I was just, I, I was speechless. And I was thinking about new life. And I was also thinking about this passage. Because in God giving himself as a baby, he's saying new life is something that's given, not earned. And think about it. You can't impress a baby. Try all you want, you're not going to impress a baby. The only thing you can do is receive a baby. And this is what, how God gave himself. He gave himself as a baby, signifying this. You can't impress me, so stop trying. The only thing you can do is receive me. The only thing you can do is receive me. That's what Christmas is about. It's not about impressing God. That's what Christianity is about. It's not about pressing God. It's about receiving him. See, many of us hear the narrative that, you know, when you die, you go to heaven and Good people get to heaven and bad people get to hell. And there's like a scale, like where God's going to say, okay, let's look at your life. And then there's a scale. And your good works, if they outwear your bad works, then you get to go to heaven. But in God giving us a baby, he's, he's blowing up that construct. He's saying, no, 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 no. At the end of your life, there is no scale. There's only a question. Did you receive my son? That's the only question. There is no scale. New life is given. It's not earned. So to stand amazed is to take an honest inventory of your life and to say right now, in this day, today, this morning, in this season of life, am I receiving God's son? Am I receiving him? Luke, the gospel writer, forces us to ask this question as he tells us of the Christmas narrative of Jesus' birth. When Jesus was born, where was he placed? In a manger. Why does Luke tell us that? Because there was no room for him in the inn. And when you read that phrase, we should ask the question, am I making room in my heart for Jesus? To try and earn or impress God's love, to try to earn God's love or impress him for his favor, is to push Jesus aside. The problem in in the passage that Luke tells us is that there were many people who were okay with being near Jesus, but they didn't want to let him in. Are you one of those people? 
Are you one of those people who are okay being acquainted with or or near him, but today you're not willing to let him into your heart? Many Christians tell me, Pastor, I did let Jesus in. I have received his gift. I am, I'm a Christian after all. I I accepted him at, at high school camp in, you know, 1995. May I ask you the question back? But why do you go on living as if it's still up for you to earn his favor? Many Christians feel like failures because we know we fall short. Many Christians, they wouldn't characterize their life with God as life-giving. They would characterize it as a chore. They would characterize obedience as a heavy burden, not a path of freedom. They would say that serving him is a begrudging duty, not a joy-filled opportunity. Many Christians burn out because they forgot that they don't have to earn his favor any longer. I wonder if you're there today. Christmas is a great reminder to you. It's an invitation to say, look, you don't have to earn it. You just have to receive him. It's given. And so when we stand amazed at the manger, we see Jesus, we just see his grace, his love. So another reason we stand amazed is because the names that this passage gives to Jesus. It gives him four names. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. These four names, it's, it's, like, it's almost like one name isn't enough. <laughs> How do we describe our Lord? Well, human language just reaches for descriptions. And so Isaiah threw out four names to try to to give us a picture of who he is. So the first one is Mighty Counselor. A counselor is an expert at giving advice and wisdom, at giving guidance. Uh, One passage or one uh, interpretation I read was extraordinary strategist. Anybody need an extraordinary strategist in their life? I do. This child would be our wonderful counselor. A good counselor is good because they know how to listen and they know what to say. But it starts with listening. Now, when Jesus grew up and he spoke and he preached, every time Jesus preached, it was a packed house. There's never been a preacher like our Lord. Hallelujah. Even the, even the religious elites looked at Jesus and they listened to his sermons and they said, whoa, this dude has a new authority, like from heaven. You know why that was? Because he was from heaven. When he preached, it was a packed house. And no wonder everybody hung on his words. You know why? Because as God, Jesus has been listening to humanity for as long as humanity has existed. He knows everyone's hearts. He knows everyone's concerns. So when he spoke, it cut straight to people's hearts. He's our wonderful counselor. Wonderful. Like when you hear the words of Jesus... You stand in wonder. I mean, this is why in colleges, people still study the words of Christ, though they don't believe in him. This is why when you pick up your Bible and you read the words of Jesus, all of a sudden it's like, wait a second, these words are reading me. It's like he read my mail or something. Because he's our wonderful counselor. In verse two, it says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. That's what a counselor does. He brings light to the darkness. It's like when you get lost in the woods at night and you're like, man, I wish I had a flashlight that worked because a flashlight helps pave the way. 
helps show you the way. And that's who Jesus is. And what this passage is telling us is that this wonderful counselor is revealed to us in the manger. And so in other words, it's this. If you want guidance for your life, you have to start by going to the manger. You don't need an outer body experience. You don't need enlightenment. You don't need to read another book. You need to go to the manger. And in the manger, God counsels us. It's in the manger, as Philippians 2 says, that we see Jesus not counting equality with God a thing to be used for his own advantage. But instead, he empties himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself to the point of death. God is offering us counsel from the manger. And his counsel is this. If you want to have a good life, stop living life for your own advantage. Live your life to lay it down to serve God and other people. Then your life will be fulfilled. So the manger is God's counseling office. It's not where we would like to go, but it's where we need to go. We stand amazed. Next reason we stand amazed is because he's mighty God. Jesus is mighty God. Sometimes when we think about Jesus, we think about him skipping in fields with flowers and lambs like a sissy. And we're like, I wouldn't follow that guy into battle. That's not Jesus. The Jesus of the real Bible is mighty God. Mighty is a military term. It means strong victor, brave warrior. And that means that Jesus is God in the flesh to be our strong victor, our brave warrior, to fight our battles, to deliver us from sin, to uh, save us from our addictions, and to heal our brokenness. He's our mighty warrior, and he's God. Now that takes mighty to a new level, doesn't it? When we, have my, when we think about mighty on man's terms, it's like, yeah, that guy's stronger than me. He's benching 300 pounds. He's pretty mighty. But when we say mighty God, it takes it to a whole nother level. This is the guy who created all things out of nothing. This is the guy who's the master of galaxies. This is the guy who knows all the organisms in the sea. This is mighty God. This is the guy who, when we get somewhere in space, God's like, I've been here the whole time. This is mighty God. So it's a whole nother level of mighty. And, my, and Isaiah is saying, uh, this is mighty God because he's contrasting the f- foolishness of the idolatry that the people of Israel had. In fact, that's one of the mega themes of his book. Throughout Isaiah, he's rebuking them for worshiping created things. In fact, if you read Isaiah 43, you have to read it. Isaiah just mocks them. He says, here's what you do. You go into the forest and you take your little axe and you top down a tree. And then you cut half of it and you put it in the fire and you warm yourself by the fire. Then you cook some food over that. But then you take the other half of the tree that you chop down and you take your little tools to it and then you carve it into an image and then you bow down and you say, deliver me my God. It's like, that's ridiculous. That's what idolatry is. It's ridiculous. It's giving creative things too much authority in your life. And the funny thing about it is those things can't save you. They aren't mighty. But this child is mighty God. I think if Isaiah were walking around here in Sparks, Nevada, 
he would say that we had a similar problem as Israel. He would look around and say, wow, it looks like you guys are really bowing to your phones. You can't put them down. You're running to substances thinking that they're going to help you. Marijuana ain't going to help you. Alcohol ain't going to deliver you. Those pills, they'll make you feel good for a little while, but the emptiness comes back. He would look at our relationships and says, man, it really looks like you're hoping that relationships will satisfy the deepest longing of your soul, but they won't. The comforts of suburbia, you're chasing that house, that dream, that cul-de-sac, but it ain't going to be enough. That new car, it's just another payment. That new career, you'll eventually be dissatisfied again. The new goal, the new success, they can't save you. Created things aren't mighty. You need the child in the manger. And you see, the only proper response to experiencing somebody mighty is to stand in awe and amazed. When I was in high school, I used to love to watch on ESPN those strongman competitions where people are lifting like thousands of pounds and these dudes are like pulling semi-trucks and all this stuff. And I just stood there like this. Because all you could do when you watch that is stand amazed. I had a couple in my community group. They went to New York City last week and they posted on Facebook these street performers doing these dances where they were doing flips and then landing on their hands. And a whole crowd gathered. And you know what you do? You don't jump in at that point and say, I want in. (laughs) When you experience somebody mighty, you just stand amazed. And that's what we're supposed to do with this child in manger. Strength veiled in weakness. And we stand amazed. The next name is Everlasting Father. Now, at first, these two terms don't seem to go together, right? Everlasting is a heavenly term, and Father is a down-to-earth term. Everlasting means continuing forever in both directions of time. And Father is an earthly term that we can actually get our heads and our hands around. Now, I need to pause here because I know that uh, many of us in this room have had bad fathers or absent fathers. Here's one thing you need to know, that when the Bible talks about God being our father, he's not talking about your bad father. It paints, it's a different picture. And so I'm going to ask you for this moment to just set the idea of your earthly father aside and to know that this is speaking of a perfect father. And as a perfect father, think about if, if you could drop what a perfect father would be, what does a perfect father do? Well, he's present with his kids. He loves his kids. He cares about his kids. He wants to hear from his kids. He leads his kids. He disciplines his kids, but he never abuses them. He will provide for his kids and he'll protect his kids. That is what a father does. And all of that love is wrapped up into this child in the manger. And now what this means is this. It's it's not saying that Jesus is God the Father. It's saying that he's come here to reveal the love of the everlasting father. You see, fathers have a unique relationship with their children. There's a lot of good men in my kids' life, but only I am their dad. Only I can love them with my fatherly love. Nobody else gets that right. Only I am their father. And I will do anything for the sake of my kids' well-being. 
you know, when I was 14 years old, I was playing baseball and I dove for a ball and snapped my arm in half. It was horrible. My dad took me to the hospital and on the way, as I'm screaming in agony, my dad said, I wish I could trade places with you. And I was like, when I was 14, dad, you're crazy. (laughs) You have no idea how bad this hurts. And I didn't understand that fully until this summer when we were on a family bike ride and my son fell on both of his arms. And on the way to the hospital, I'm thinking, I wish I could trade places. And don't you see, church, that this is what that child in the manger has come to do? To trade places? It starts him being cast out and not wanted. It ends with him on a cross. Because God is saying to you, that in every way that you feel cast out, unloved, and not wanted, I want to bring you in. And in every way that you deserve to die, I would rather die than live without you. This is the everlasting love of the Father wrapped up in a bundle. That's why he's our bundle of joy. (laughs) And then he's Prince of Peace. Now this word prince uh, is sometimes used synonymously with a king. Because a prince and a king in ancient times had the same level of authority. A lot of times when a king would go and he would want to send a message to another city in his name, he would not go himself, but he would send his prince. But when the prince spoke, it was with the king's authority. And he's the prince of peace. And this word peace, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that it means the Hebrew word shalom, which means everything as it ought to be. Not simply absence of conflict, but everything made right again. And Jesus has come to make everything right again. And he's come with the authority of heaven to do so. And so Jesus has come to make, first of all, peace with God. So that we can have peace with God. He would die for our sins. Then he came to give us peace with each other. Because in in seeing the forgiveness of God, then we can actually start to forgive each other. We can also love each other and serve each other. And then he also gives us peace in this world because there's something about having him in your life that makes everything okay, even though it seems like chaos is ensuing. And one day he's going to give us ultimate peace where there will be no more evil. There will be no more brokenness. There will be no more injustice. There will be no more slander or gossip or pain because he will set all things right. Peace. One pastor I listened to this week said, this is the highest of the four titles because each of the other titles works towards this end, peace. We need peace. America needs peace. This world needs peace. Your family needs peace. Our hearts need peace. Do you want peace? Many people say, I want peace, but then they go on wanting nothing to do with the Prince of Peace. And you cannot have peace unless you make him your prince. And princes sit on thrones. And the only way to have peace in your life is if Jesus is on the throne of your heart. You see, in the ancient world, when a king would overtake a country, how they rolled into the city would tell the citizens what they were there to do. If they came in riding a horse, carrying swords, and with an army behind them, and they were screaming, ah, that means they came to conquer. 
But if they came in riding gently, perhaps on a donkey, or if they came in walking and, and, they, and their speech was soft, it meant they, mean, they meant to bring peace and well-being. And how do we see the God of the universe coming into this world? When he could have come however he wanted, like Thor in thunder, or like a superhero, or he could have come in a ball of fire. He chose to come as a baby. Because right now he's offering us peace. Now, if you're familiar with the rest of the Bible, at the end, you see that he comes riding a horse. And what that means simply for us is we're in a dispensation. We're in a time where God is offering us peace. Will you take the offer that he's given you? Stand amazed at this son, also because of his reign. In verse 7, it says, Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This passage tells us that we're to stand amazed at this, this child because his kingdom will have no end. It tells us of the extent of his reign, both in time and in geography. It says there will be no end forever. No end. On and on and on, forever, no matter what. When Jesus was placed in that manger, he was placed on his first throne. And it wasn't a throne of gold that man made. It was a throne of straw made straight from the hand of God. It was the first throne of God on earth. You see, God will never hand his kingdom over to another because it's been given to Jesus. And well, that's great news for us because when hell breaks loose, when everything in your life falls apart, when persecution comes, when your spiritual leaders fail you and when your church falls apart, he's still reigning. <laughs> Nothing will take him off the throne. Nothing. He's still reigning. And it's also a geography statement. It goes on and on. It will have no end. There will be no boundaries. In the ancient world, Rome was the biggest, uh, at, at the time, Rome was, was big when Jesus was born. But guess what? Rome had boundaries. There was places by which Rome did not have influence or authority. China, the great dynasties of China had boundaries. There was places where they didn't have influence or authority. Uh, great Britain in history, places where they didn't have influence or authority. And what this is saying is that this king, there would be no place where he wouldn't have influence or authority. No place would be too hard for him to reach. No person, no matter race, socioeconomic status, or hardness of heart, would be impossible for him to get at. His kingdom knows no bounds. And then we also stand amazed because this child represents the rule that God would bring. It says that he would establish his kingdom with justice and righteousness. The word righteousness means to do what is always morally right according to the standards of God. We all fail to be righteous, don't we? The word justice means to treat every person fairly because they're image bearers of God. That's what justice is. Don't you want a leader who stands for both righteousness and justice and actually follows through. You see, humanity, politics, and even churches, the problem is that we have a tendency to drift towards one of those two categories. Sometimes churches will drift and will say, well, we're going to choose what's morally right, but we do it to, to the expense of doing what is just for all people. 
And then sometimes churches focus on social justice, but they do it to the expense of what is morally right. But not this child. This child would bring a kingdom in which he is established based on both justice and righteousness. And that's why his kingdom is the greatest kingdom. And that's why when we see him in the manger, we see him, he's born to poor people. And he says, I'm for poor people. But then he's also visited by kings because he's for kings too. And he's born in purity without sin because he says, this is the kingdom that I'm going to bring, a kingdom without sin. Okay, and then lastly, we look at the motivation of his reign. And this is perhaps one of the greatest reasons why we should stand amazed at this child. You know, in reading Isaiah and reading how horrible humanity is, and then getting to Isaiah 9 and reading God's promise, you should ask the question, why would God come and deliver us? Why would God send his Messiah? God answers it in verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Why did God send Jesus? It doesn't say, well, the people were really faithful and God owed them one. It says the zeal of the Lord would do this. The word zeal means enthusiasm or intense devotion and love for his people. And the problem with zeal sometimes, if you think about people who are really zealous about stuff, is the problem with zeal is zeal can often get you to be committed to something in spite of its flaws. And that can be, it can be a reckless form of love. But in this case, it shows us the perfect nature of God's love for us. If I only pursued my wife when she was being pleasant, which just a side note, she is always pleasant. <laughs> if I only pursued her when she was being pleasant, that would be a really shallow kind of love, wouldn't it? But true love, zealous love, the love that I committed to when I said I do, is a love that commits to somebody not based on their actions, but based because you want them as your goal. That's zealous love. And church, this is the love that God has for you. And when I say for you, I'm not talking about, you know, Mother Teresa and the perfect saints and the deacons of this church. I'm talking about you, little old you, sinner you. God loves you with a zealous love. Why does he love you? Just because. If there's any other answer, that means you could lose his love really easily. If he loves me because I'm faithful, if he loves me because I read my Bible, if he loves me because I go to church, if he loves me because I'm a good person, well, what happens when you're not? But if he loves you based on his zeal and passion and enthusiasm for you alone, nothing can take that away. So have you cussed somebody out recently? Have you been a jerk? Have you caused division? Have you turned to alcohol? Have you been profane? Have you been impure? God still loves you. And nothing will take that away. And we see that in the manger. God is breaking through his light into darkness. Stand amazed at his love. You ain't going to find that kind of love anywhere else. Amen? I want us to be thinking about this. Church, we need to do battle. Culture is telling us right now that you need to be busy, 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 productive, productive, productive this week. And I'm challenging you to not be productive, but to stand amazed. So what I want you to do is, like Matt said, 
Take those sheets, those devotions, and this is a way where each day you can reflect on one of the stories about Jesus being born, and you can really do battle to try to stand amazed. Now, I typed it, so there's a bunch of spelling errors and grammatical errors, so give me a break, all right? But I tr- take that, put it on your fridge, read those passages, and do battle to stand amazed, amen? This is what Christianity, this is what Christmas is all about. Let's pray. God, thank you. I don't really have much else to say except for thank you. And I pray that you would help illuminate our eyes and our hearts to see your love more than we do right now. Grant this to us for your glory and for our good. Amen.